As more and more teenage boys retreat into the virtual world of online games, their parents and teachers are becoming increasingly worried about how it's affecting their reality. Many say boys are spending every waking and sleeping hour playing or thinking about games, with some skipping school to stay plugged into their online lives. But gamers argue there's no difference between this and obsessing over any other hobby. In 1978, when the arcade game Space Invaders took over video parlours around the world, parents were thrown into a panic about what the addictive game might do to their children. A few years later, in 1981, some Britons were so rattled by the wave of compulsive video gaming, the control of Space Invaders and other electronic games bill, asking for it to be banned, was debated briefly in the House of Commons. It was thrown out, but while such a panic over a cabinet full of oversized pixels and dated sound effects might seem pretty quaint these days... Spacey's players of the 80s are now the parents, and they're getting a taste of what their own parents went through when they snuck off to the fish and chip shop to kill some aliens. I'm Teresa Cowie, and this insight looks at whether the current fears over internet fantasy games are just a generational wave of moral panic over advancing technology, or if real problems are in store further down the track. Today's games are far more sophisticated, with multiple players donning headsets and talking to each other online. See, we're starting now, and everyone accepts into the game. There's always ten players per game, unless there's different maps. Well, there's only two maps, but it's six. You can choose different characters every single time. Has Jungle been called? Okay, I'm Jungle. Now gamers from all over the world can get together online to play for free if you don't count the cost of the internet connection and they can do this at any time of the day or night and they don't have to head out the door with a pocket full of 20 cent coins. While a few games companies make their money from monthly fees, most revenue comes from advertising, selling players extra powers or props for their characters or access to higher levels in the game. The gaming industry is forecasting that worldwide spending on virtual goods will reach $4.1 billion over the next three years. And among those will be some buyers who don't know when to stop playing. The Problem Gambling Foundation's research director, Dr Phil Townsend, says there are no official figures on online video game addiction, but increasingly parents of young people hooked on the games are asking him for help. It's not uncommon for me to hear about parents that feel like they can't leave the house without taking the modem and the keyboard with them uh, to try and control the kids' access to the computer. Uh, you know, I've certainly met parents where they've done that and the kids have just broken into the neighbour's place not to steal anything but to use the computer. And that's not a, a single case that that's happened. That's happened a few times. He says some young people he's been contacted about play up to 20 hours a day, but the worst case he's dealt with is someone who's fighting in the virtual battlefields almost non-stop. There's one family that I know of where actually this boy who's now in his late 20s is spending all his time on either internet gaming or other internet sites 
and just on a sickness benefit, living in a flat, never sees his son, uh, and his father's actually had to move where his son is just to kind of look after him and do basic cares for him. You know, that this is a boy that's, or a young man really, that's spending all his time uh, plugged into the internet. The National Telephone and Online Counselling Service, Youthline, says not many callers recognise they might have a gaming addiction because often it's a symptom of bigger problems. <laughs> At Skynet, an internet and gaming cafe in Wellington, 18-year-old gamer Matthew Brown says he went through a period of what he would describe as an addiction last year. Honestly, like, there was a time in, like, year 12 where I could have moderated myself better. But I think there's times in, like, everyone's lives like that. And I think it's good that I can acknowledge that. But right now, no. Like, for instance, I took a two-week break just before because I was having some IRL issues. And in real life, sorry. Massive gamer slang there. But, like, I took two weeks off just before because I was having some in real life issues. I got maybe done it for my job, so I had to kind of start looking for a new one, I guess. I, I think that the parents do have some legitimate issues, but if it's getting to the point where the kids are, like, spending too much time on it, I think it's the parents' issue, not the children, because the parents need to be the one moderating it. I see the game being blamed far too much, and that kind of annoys me because it is a great game and it's not designed the way, so it ruins people's lives. He says he was gaming so much to escape other problems. Every day for like three or four hours when I got home and like sometimes it would take preference over my study, which is annoying because when I was at school I always like aimed for excellence, like I associated like level two excellence um, in NCA and that was good, but I still think I could have done better for that year. Like I failed my physics, which annoyed me. Some people use it as a stress lever and I won't lie and say I've used it Many times it's a stress lever. It's sometimes good to log on and just have a chat with some Aussie friends. At that time, though, what do you think it was that made you play so often? Um, I just really had nothing else to do, and high school is always a stressful time. Like, let's face it, no one really gets through high school like unscathed. In recent years, Craig Nickel, an information communication technology teacher at Nelson's Nayland College, has started to see excessive gaming emerging as a problem at his school. He wanted to find out more about what was happening with his students, so he put these questions to one of his classes. Just out of curiosity, guys, how many of you know someone who you think, in your own opinion, video games way too much? Um, about two-thirds of my class put their hand up. How many of you think that you, and this is your own opinion, how many of you think that you actually game too much? And... I think there was about a quarter of the class on it just left their hand up and were like, started, started a conversation. Yeah, I actually game too much. I'm not quite sure what to do. As more parents started to approach him about how to deal with what they felt was excessive gaming, he began to understand more about what motivated the teenagers' habits. Some of the issues that I have heard from parents is when they try to, say, take away the modem or um, stop students from having access they're encountering behaviours that they've actually never seen their child exhibit before. Like, they're getting really, really angry. And what they're not realising is, is you're not just taking away a video game from them. What they're feeling like they're being removed that's making them so angry is their social life, is their sense of belonging. And um, that's a powerful thing to take away from someone who's not coping socially. Among his students, he noticed the problem often set in when they were starting out at secondary school. First of all, you've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of, let's say, a year nine student. You're 13 years old. You've started college. You're a junior again. You're smaller than everybody else. And 
instead of being in one classroom with all your friends, you, you, you can be bouncing around the place from subject to subject. You might not be in the same classroom with all your friends. You might not have had very many friends to start with, and all of a sudden you're feeling really isolated socially. You might not have anyone to talk to at lunchtime. So the power that they get is they get online, and I use the word rugby. In New Zealand, we understand the rugby culture really well. And if you can talk rugby, you can go into a lot of places in New Zealand and go, oh, did you see the rugby last night? Now, they're getting that same sort of social contact, but this stuff is online. And I say this is their rugby, and it's gaming, and it's their culture where their knowledge gets recognised online. And it's something that belongs to them. It's their culture. So the power, to sum that up, is I belong. I mean, it's a really powerful thing for a young person to have. I belong and I have skills here and this is something I'm good at. The IT teacher and his English teacher colleague, Duncan McKinley, put their heads together and came up with the idea of hosting gaming competitions at the school. Duncan McKinley sees the competitions, known as land tournaments, as a way of getting into the culture the students enjoy and making it more sociable. I want to allow students who perhaps wouldn't be socialising face-to-face like they are at the moment, the opportunity to do that and have it sort of revolve around a shared sort of interest that everyone is into. And from that, hopefully, it'll lead to friendships outside of the club as well. The teachers have set up the event so it's organised by senior students who play in teams with the juniors. Actually, that's something I'd say that's the biggest thing that I've really seen here today is the conversation has been non-stop, wouldn't you say? Mm, Definitely, yeah. And it's not isolated between juniors and seniors, it's just flowing throughout the entire room. Yeah, and those barriers just sort of break down, don't they? Yeah. I mean, what can we see when we look around now? We've got two year nines talking to a 17-year-old over there. Everyone's sort of having a break from gaming. We've got three juniors down there with a senior. Crystal Muller, who's 16, is one of the college's senior students. And as her teachers had hoped, she's developed some valuable leadership skills out of helping to organise the tournament. Yeah, it's much better than doing it at home and stuff because, you know, you get to help people who aren't who wouldn't normally be able to learn these things and stuff. And it's also much better being able to talk to everyone and meeting new people, yeah. Being in groups of people gives you those opportunities. And also, um, as we did today, having the team leaders and stuff and being able to help those people, you know, I wouldn't usually do that kind of thing. Another of the seniors, 16-year-old Shay Fowler, enjoys being face-to-face with his fellow competitors. Because you can't really challenge yourself by yourself. And when you're in a large group, you get that really good sense of camaraderie and helping each other, and it really is a good feeling. Craig Nickel believes that when it comes to the parents, the powerlessness they often feel as they try to control their child's gaming habit is made worse by their own feelings of guilt. Games have a rating system on them. Some of the games that the kids play are R16, and they're not 16 years old. Some of the games they play are R18, and they're not 18 years old. So there's a real blur here with the definition that the generation above them have about, well, it's a game. So there's guilt there. And I think there's also guilt as, well, we've encouraged them to use this technology because, you know, it's going to be in their job, but, and now they're using it, we want to take it away from them. It's so confusing. I've got two 14-year-old boys who love to game as well, and it's like, what kind of practical solutions do we put around this to make sure that the key here is if excessive gaming is happening, what is the harm being done? And I don't think we know enough about what the harm is that's being done. My guess, 
you try to find research on this, there's nothing around. So I'm stabbing in the, in the dark as a bit of a gamer myself. My guess is the harm that's being done here is, number one, they're not socialising in real life, which means they're not developing appropriate social skills, which then leads on to further activities in their life. Through doing that, they're being exposed or running the risk of developing compulsive behaviours to do with, I must get online, and it just becomes a habit. So if that's the harm, how do we manage the harm that's being done? Like I take my own kids, my, my, my kids, they love to game. So part of the guidelines I have around that with my kids is, number one, it's a privilege, and they earn it, and they earn it through things like, would you like to do some gaming? Yeah, okay, uh, tell you what, we'll organise some time for you, but I want you to have, I've got twin boys, so I make them invite two friends over each. Part of that, they'll be doing some gaming. Part of that's just you know, introducing some socialising there. So that's me as a parent approaching that problem. At Wellington College in the capital, the principal of the all-boys school, Roger Moses, says trying to moderate the time young people spend gaming is easier said than done. What we're hearing from parents via the guidance counsellor and via staff and so on is that probably a reasonably significant minority are really hooked on this thing. In many cases, they're staying up all night. They may be going to bed and they may be getting up later when their parents think they're still in bed and either leaving and going to a gaming place or alternatively just working online through their own uh, PCs and so on. As a consequence of that, a significant number of boys, I think, are very tired. The quality of their academic performance is certainly dropping off. Allied to a lack of sleep, there are issues around depression. Our guidance counsellor has done some surveys on depression in schools and uh, one of the real causes, I guess, of depression is a lack of sleep. And if these young men are spending their whole time up at night, they're not going to be in any fit state to get to school. Roger Moses says some students are playing truant, failing courses and dropping out of playing sport to play the games. While most gaming happens outside the school gate, students can still easily be tempted into playing on their mobiles, tablets and laptops when they're in class. So why not just ban them from bringing the devices to school? Roger Moses explains that Wellington College is resisting digital prohibition. We are also encouraging them increasingly to bring their own devices to school. This is the way that youngsters access knowledge. You know, we can't turn back the clock, we can't deny that this is the way that young people are learning today. But I guess it's a question of, and we stumble in the way in which we try and enforce this, I think all schools are faced with this dilemma. It's all very well saying we're going to have none of it at school, but you imagine a school without actually having any computers. And there is so much good that has come through our ability to access information through the internet. I mean, our lessons can be much more exciting these days, where you've got access to clips that you can download and then show on your digital projector or whatever. You know, we can't deny these things are happening. It's a question of schools having to review their policies and to make policies which are reasonably enforceable in the light of where technology is at. Fans of gaming say it's a legitimate pastime that just gets a bad reputation because some people overdo it. In South Korea, where many of the games are made, tournaments where professional players can win millions of dollars in prizes have made online gaming the country's national sport. And eSport, as it's known, is starting to take off here. Um, so it's great to see so many people on, but it's really what it depends on. If, if the community doesn't get together, it doesn't happen again. So you guys have shown that there is a community here to watch this stuff, so thanks heaps.
In this bustling Wellington pub, about 150 gaming fans have gathered around the big screens to watch two players battle it out in the final of the StarCraft II World Championships. Esports fan, 26-year-old software developer Jamie Penny is here supporting his favourite player. Really keen to watch MVP wipe the floor with life. I play Zerg, so in theory I should be backing life, but long-time MVP fan. There's commentary, sponsorship and players limbering up for the game. The only difference between pub goers watching a rugby game and this occasion is that the crowd of mostly programmers and web designer fans are dressed in ironic t-shirts and cool trainers and the players moving on the screens are a collection of pixels being manipulated by humans. I find like lately at least it's easier to sort of explain it to people because you can show them videos on YouTube. It's just like normal sports. You've got two casters, you know, a colour caster and an analytical caster, same as sort of standard rugby game. And what about uniforms? Are there uniforms and things like that and uh, colours to wear or something to show your allegiance? No, not so much I guess, no, at least not for the fans. I mean like the teams and stuff have their different sponsorship things, they've sort of got blazers and that sort of thing. But because it tends to be more player-focused than team-focused. Everyone sort of just, yeah, it's pretty casual. So no esports hooliganism? No, not so much. <laughs> Maybe when it gets a bit bigger. And some players here in New Zealand are trying to break into esports too. Ben McDonald, whose player name is Iris Crimson, is the captain of a semi-professional StarCraft II team. And when the 20-year-old's not studying for his accounting degree, he's training hard with his team. So how much training does it take to be a professional? It kind of depends on, on my other commitments. So university obviously does take a toll, particularly over exams. When I have nothing else on, I can put in upwards of six to eight hours a day. When I'm a bit busier, it could be, you know, three or four. Again, it's kind of a personal commitment though, so it's up to me. There's no set time limit or anything like that. So it's kind of a case of the more you put in, the more reward you get, I guess. Ben McDonald and his team have secured some sponsorship and are now trying to set up a gaming academy so New Zealand gamers can get good enough to play against the best. At the moment, because we're uh, just starting up with the academy, it's very relaxed, sort of like one, three or four hour session every week. But also on top of that, we take players of our own race, so I take two people. We go away, we study particular ways of playing, particular matchups. If you were to compare it to chess, for example, there are particular openings in chess, so I would go for a particular opening, but in StarCraft, and then I'd run through that with the guys, make sure that you know they pick up on all, all the subtleties of the matchup. Also, the other thing we do is pass over replays of our games so that they can learn from them. When you meet up, is the academy face-to-face -face or is it online? We have two guys in Wellington, so we can you know, meet them face-to-face -face at tournaments, etc. But we also have two guys in the South Island, so that's over the internet. Luckily, it's, it's pretty easy these days with Skype to host these kind of sessions over the internet, and it works pretty well. Ben McDonald says his parents were initially wary of how much he was playing games, but now they're supportive of his dream to go professional. But that's not how most parents see it. And if gaming might be bad for young people's health, education and social development, should it be more tightly regulated? In South Korea, where deaths have been linked to online gaming and addiction is rife, laws have been introduced to restrict how long young people can play. The shutdown law passed two years ago uses a system which bars gamers from playing between midnight and 6 o'clock in the morning if their login details show they're under 16. 
The manager of Skynet Internet Cafe in Wellington, Matthew Tapuaru, says things haven't gone that far here yet. There could be a point, like New Zealand is really, really small and um, the numbers in esports is really, really tiny, so uh, we haven't actually gotten up to the point where kids are like foregoing everything else in their life to play games, which is actually happening in, kind of in Korea, but there may come a time where that has to be regulated. At the moment it's, it's quite good and people will understand like they've got um, responsibilities and things they need to keep up with. Maybe in the future that could become an issue. Matthew Tapuaru says Skynet doesn't have any rules to stop students from playing too long or during school time. He believes the $4 per hour cost of playing puts a limit on how much young people can afford anyway, and they'd most likely get the money from their parents who could restrict it if they wanted to. However, he says regular players can get a discounted rate, and they also have a special night pass for nine hours of play from midnight until nine o'clock in the morning, which costs $15 with no age limit on who can stay. Addiction counsellor Dr Phil Townsend doesn't think heavier regulation will work. He thinks the right attitude to computers needs to be fostered at home. China's tried to do it and is being undermined quite rapidly in terms of the gambling on the internet area, for example, there's a, a lot of governments trying to regulate it because they can't tax it unless they can regulate it in some way. And, and in general, they're being reasonably unsuccessful. I think that the, the rules that we need to put around it are rules that we teach our children about putting some limits on our internet use, that we need to see this kind of stuff as a recreational activity, something that you do when everything else has been done rather than something that you do before you do other things. At Waikato University, PhD student Michael Wormsley is taking the parts of games that make them so enthralling and using those aspects to teach teenagers computer programming. When I was young, my parents didn't let me get any computer games for our computer, so since I wasn't allowed to play them and I enjoyed making things, I instead asked my parents, well, how can I make computer games? And so my dad found a book that I could read that would help me learn how to do that. And so I guess I, I owe my enthusiasm for computer programming and my parents' decision to not let me play computer games. His younger brother was allowed to play, though. One of my younger brothers, who was at high school, I started teaching him myself and also showing him resources on the internet that I th thought were quite effective and tried to encourage him to, to use these resources to learn web development. And he'd say to me that, oh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go away and I'll, I'll do this. And I'd come back a few days later and say, so how did it go? And he'd say, oh, I was too busy with my homework as he's in the middle of playing a computer game. And so I realized that, okay, clearly these resources that I was trying to get him to, to use to, to learn web development uh, weren't as enticing or as fun or as motivating as these computer games. So if I was going to get him to learn the things that I wanted him to learn, I needed some resources that were more fun and enjoyable, but still effective as far as learning was concerned. This inspired him to develop his online computer programming tutorial, Code Avengers, which some schools are now using to teach year 11 to 13 students. Code Avengers is a fun, easy way to learn JavaScript, a computer programming language of the web. Whether you're young or old, if you want to learn JavaScript, Code Avengers is for you.
Code Avengers uses the concept of gamification, where game techniques like rewards or promotion to higher levels motivate the teens. One of the elements of gamification I mentioned, which has become quite popular over the last couple of years, is something called badges. So when learners achieve certain milestones in my courses or on other websites and tasks that they do, they receive these badges. So in the case of, of my courses, for every 100 tasks they complete, they get a, a new badge, or in a sense, they're leveling up. And so by having a counter that sort of tells them, okay, you've only got to complete, you know, three more tasks before you get the next badge, surprisingly enough, that helps motivate people to just do those few extra tasks so they can get the next badge or reach the next level of points. Michael Wormsley's technique of learning through games is more appealing because it involves more doing and less reading, and he now plans to expand the tool to teaching languages as well. The Problem Gambling Foundation's Dr Phil Townsend says the gambling industry has its own plans for those motivated by gaming. He says the industry wants to tempt hooked gamers into online casinos. There is this kind of morphing of gambling games and the online gambling industry is very much moving to make its gambling products look like computer games, obviously because they know that there's this huge group of people who are sort of coming through the system who are very comfortable spending large amounts of time and presumably significant amounts of money in, in online gaming. A look at the website of the third annual London Social Gaming and Gambling Summit held recently shows the gambling industry is scrambling to hook in gamers. The new breed of casual and social gamers represents a massive audience that cuts across all age, gender and demographic boundaries. We're also witnessing the convergence of social gaming and gambling. Given that social gaming is the fastest growing sector within the online gaming industry, this is a must-attend event. Dr Townsend says young gamers are already being groomed by the gambling industry via social networking sites. The move in online gambling is to come up with games that uh, are basic enough that you can play them on your phone so that you can, you know, on the way to work or in the car or whatever, you can uh, be gambling. And um, one of the things that's very clear about where gambling stuff is going is that the big frontier is in what's called remote gambling. So that's gambling where you're doing it, usually not through a computer, actually, usually through a phone or an iPad or something. The big worry for the future, says Dr Townsend, is that this will leave addicted gamers and gamblers with no chance of avoiding temptation. I'm Theresa Cowie and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.